Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Welcome back, everybody. I'm happy to be here in part two with Jose Luis Stevens. We left off the last time looking at some high points of his life. And today, we're going to be examining some of the most significant teachers in his life that, that led him to where he is today. So, Jose, welcome back and take us along on that ride with you. Oh, sure. Okay. It's nice to be back here. Um, well, some of my most profound teachers, I mentioned last time that one of my very best teachers, of course, was my grandmother. Um, uh, then there was a hiatus uh, in my life. I had a variety of conventional teachers, none of which I would consider outstanding. Um, and it, but when I got into graduate school um, uh, at uh, California Institute for Integral Studies, uh, I, I had an opportunity to meet some profoundly influential teachers. One of those teachers was um, Angelus Arian, who uh, is now passed, but um, many people know of her and uh, revere her. And uh, she was Basque, uh, Basque anthropologist, by the way. And uh, um, she uh, introduced me to... Uh, Basque shamanism, which I didn't know existed. And uh, she had been brought up in that and uh, had spent done a year walkabout. Um, she, she, at the age, I, I can't remember now what she said, but I think it was 16. She was um, let loose in the mountains and she had to fend for herself for one year, all by herself. And all she had was a knife and a couple of little implements and that was it and she survived and she said that uh, there were aspects of it that were very very difficult and very challenging but uh, uh, she she was one of those people that lived she walked her talk she lived what what her teachings were and one of the things that she had been taught by her elders was the importance of balance in everything that everything had to be balanced the masculine the feminine the you know, the intellect with the emotions and all these things. And, uh, and she um, actually had a practice that when she got up and talked, she would walk back and she would walk all the way to the right. And then she would walk back across the stage all the way to the left. And she continued to make these movements of left and right and left and right, because she had uh, integrated the teaching about balancing the right and the left and the hemispheres of the brain and the way that she did that was to, to walk as she was talking. She, she almost never saw her sit down to teach. She, she was always standing and she was always walking in this fashion, back and forth and back and forth. And so just the way she carried herself, just the way she was, was a teaching for me. And I, I happened to be a small percentage Basque. So we, we had a, a nice connection with that, you know. Um, uh, 
and uh, uh, she was she was extremely helpful in in uh, my doctoral dissertation, and and not because she was an expert in statistics or any of those kind of things, but it was just her, her very kind and very gentle um, uh, approach to life. And uh, one, one of the things that she told me was that, um, you know, uh, a, a dissertation is a thousand baby steps. And uh, uh, you put one foot in front of the other and every day you take a couple baby steps and all of a sudden your dissertation is done. <laughs> and it, you, you don't think about the whole thing. You just think about the, the two baby steps that are in front of you. And of course, baby steps are easy to take. You, I can make that phone call. I can pick up that book. And then there's two more after that and then three more after that, you know. And, and it went exactly like she said. And I just followed that very simple advice. And before too long, I, I had finished my, my dissertation in about a year, which was really unusual considering that some people were at it for five, six years. So I really um, honor her for that. Taught me a great many things, but uh, there's other people I want to mention here. Um, of course, I, I mentioned uh, Guadalupe, the, the Huichol shaman, Marakame, that I spent 10 years with. And, uh, you know, he was a very, um, uh, he wasn't schooled. He didn't, I mentioned that he was illiterate. He didn't know how to sign his name. And one time I offered to teach him to write his name so he could sign some documents so he could cross the border. And he absolutely refused. And I didn't understand that. I said, well, it's very easy. I could just show you how to write your name. He said, no, I don't want anything to do with literacy because it'll change the way my brain works. It'll change my, basically he was saying it will alter his neurology. And that would affect his abilities and his powers. And he didn't want to do that because he, like many indigenous people, he was aware that learning to read and write, while it's a great advantage in civilization and in culture and all those things, it actually changes the way your perception works. It changes the way your, uh, your brain works. And in some ways it interferes with the shamanic um, perception of the world. I didn't understand that at the time that he said it, but later in talking to many people and reading and all that, I discovered that what he was trying to tell me, that he was being very faithful to that. It wasn't that he was um, being stubborn or, you know, anything like that. It's just that he knew what he was talking about. He knew what he wanted and he, he knew he didn't need to, to learn to read or write. And he wanted his knowledge to come directly from nature and directly from his direct experience of, of the world and not through third hand, you know, through or second hand, through uh, reading. And I, I, even though I love to read and I'm, you know, I'm a very literate person myself, I really admired that about him, that he, he, he stuck to his guns and he, he, he had his own reasons for doing things. And um, uh, so, so uh, he, he was a powerful teacher to me. Uh, 
Another wonderful teacher I had, I mentioned briefly, was that I spent a month in uh, Nepal and Kathmandu studying with a Tibetan Buddhist um, Lama. I, I met him and I was so impressed with him and I admired him and I just felt like I wanted to go visit him every day. And he invited me to come and visit him every day and he would teach me about Tibetan Buddhism. And, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't remember the things that he taught me. His English was bad. He spoke in very broken English. And so God knows, you know, how much I lost in translation. But every day at the end of our talk, he would put his forehead on my forehead and he would transmit information that way. And that's when I really learned from him. Well, I mean, all the, all the talking was just, I think, to fill the time. <laughs> all the teaching took place in about 30 seconds every day when, when he, he put his forehead to mine. And um, it, it's amazing how much I know about Tibetan Buddhism, even though I haven't studied it very much. I, I think he was just transmitting a whole lot of stuff to me. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but later I looked back and I went, that's what he was doing. So that was kind of a remarkable experience for me. I never really had that. I always, my view of the world is like most Westerners, you know, it's like, well, you learn by somebody telling you something verbally or you read it in a book and that's the way you learn. I had no idea that somebody could teach you telepathically. And I didn't even believe that until I had it done. And then I realized in retrospect that a great deal had happened. Uh, uh, and since then, I've had many opportunities to verify that. One of my greatest teachers, actually, is my daughter, Anna, who is um, on the shamanic path. She's a great shamanic healer. Uh, she's a good ceremonialist. She's been at this stuff since she was a little girl. And um, now she's teaching my grandchildren, you know, the same way. And one of the things I've noticed with her is that, um, oh, you know, we'll be, we'll be uh, performing a ceremony and I will be getting ready to sing a Nicaro, a sacred song that fits with, you know, the, the part of the ceremony we're doing. And before I can open my mouth, she starts singing the song. And, you know, I, she knows a lot of songs. She can sing a whole bunch of songs that I don't even know. But it's happened so many times that I know she just, she just reaches in and, and plucks out the song that I'm thinking about and sings it. <laughs> so, you know, there's these various experiences of having telepathic communication with um, people like her that have taught me over the long run that that's um, a very real thing. And I uh, back up a little a moment and just ask you to, to tie these three different stories together because you know both you and I come from an academic background and then all of a sudden get thrust into an indigenous environment where that that training means absolutely nothing and if anything you know I think that there's often the idea by native people that that those that type of learning can be counterproductive to those of us who are on this 
particular path. So can you just help me through that? Like what this was like for you to have this linear academic training and then find yourself in these situations that, that don't make sense from that, from that point of view. Well, you're, you're right. I, I mean, there's ways I skipped over a lot of my angst about that, you know, like, uh, first when these things began to happen, I, I would be, um, uh, it would cause me great discomfort, uh, mentally, you know, I, I would, I would be caught between two ways of, of seeing things. And I thought that I had to choose one. I thought that one was right and one was wrong, but how could this be? I would uh, agonize, you know, about like, well, how could this be right if this other thing here is right at the same time? And, you know, I, I, I was uh, confused a lot. And um, the, what really saved me was realizing that they could both be right, that the paradox could be held and I could have two different frames of reference and they both could have their legitimacy and they weren't necessarily, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They weren't necessarily uh, invalidating the other. One, one wasn't invalidating the other, it was just a different, um, maybe we could even say a different frequency or a different dimensional aspect of of reality that allowed that to work at the same time as, you know, the more academic traditional way. Um, well, what's the takeaway from that, Jose? In other words, you know, here you are Western trained and for some reason you find yourself drawn into these various indigenous environments and, you know, making sacrifices in terms of your time and your energy and going there and, and finding this conflict at one point, what is there, what is there there that is important? In other words, why should our listeners care about the way that indigenous people live and learn? Why is that important? Um, well, in some ways, what I, I've learned and realized is that they're much better educated than we are in terms of um, they, they understand why, I mean, it's not hard to see in some, I'm using a very obvious example, but they understand why it's not a good idea to, to uh, destroy the, the jungle and cut down the Amazon forest. Um, they're, they're not... You know, our, our way of thinking tends to make us myopic. We're very, very narrow focused. We can't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. And so we, we tend to come to the, a conclusion based on logic that is not necessarily, maybe, maybe the right conclusion when it comes to like uh, what's financially most feasible or better. But they, because of our education, we tend to lose sight because we have specialization. And because of our specialization, we tend to lose sight of the integration of all the different aspects of reality that, you know, what, what, and the physicists are getting a little better at this with quantum physics. They're beginning to understand that, as they say, you know, a butterfly moves its wing on one side of the planet and the other side of the planet, something changes. So there, 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 there's understanding now that 
widely disparate things are united, they're connected. You have to consider all of them. You can't just narrow it down to one myopic little view and, and not realize that it's gonna have repercussions around the planet. Indigenous people understand this very, very well. They're very integrative. They, they, they see the big picture better than, than most people. And in that respect, they're way ahead of uh, us in terms of, um, well, uh, protecting our planet from bad practices and uh, destroying ourselves and things like that. Uh, for example, in, in our way of thinking, we would probably not think of a song as, have, as being like medicine. You know, like if a person has a bad fever, uh, a Western doctor would think it was crazy to sing that person a song. No, you give them like medicine. You give them a prescription and they go to the drugstore and they buy that and they take that, then their fever goes down, okay? But uh, most shamans understand the power of song. I was in a ceremony once in the jungle with the Shipibo, and I, was, I had gotten a terrible fever and I was so sick and I was uh, uh, almost unable to sit up. This fever had hit me very suddenly. And I crawled over to the shaman conducting the ceremony. And I said, I'm terribly ill. Can you help me? I didn't know what else to do. I was covered with sweat. Um, he said, oh, sure. I'll be there in a moment. So he finished what he was doing. And then he came over to me. And he said, okay, let's get started. And he, he just started singing a song to me. And I was, I was lying on the floor, unable to get up. And he sang this song in Shipibo, so I don't know what it said. And little by little, I started to feel the, the fever lifting up. And by the way, I had a terrible sore throat at the same time. I began to feel the, the fever lifting up and out of me. And I began to feel my throat open up and the pain drain away. And by the time he was finished singing the song, I sat up, I had no more fever, the sore throat was gone, I felt really good, and I could not understand how that had happened. <laughs> According to my Western frame of mind, it was like impossible. What I had just experienced was impossible. This, this guy sang a song to me, and I was well from being obviously very, very sick moments before. And uh, he, I said, what, what did you see? And he said, oh, he laughed. You know, he just thought it was very amusing. And he said, oh, that was a nasty little demon I had to get rid of. And then he, he went back to conducting the ceremony. And I felt great for the rest of the night. And I was perfectly fine the next day. So, you know, that's, an, that's a different kind of intelligence. That, that's, a, that's an amazing ability. Uh, and, of course, he has the, the understanding that, that that's medicine. That's what he was trained in. He learned to use song as a way to heal people.
And it did, even, even to a Westerner that had no, no background in that. It still worked. And th- there's, there's, a certain, there's a certain being, being drawn in in the moment to have it make sense. But I'm curious about when you went back and you reflected back on that experience when you found yourself in your familiar world and you thought back to that experience, how did the, the Western trained PhD make sense of that and explain it? Um, that's a good question. It took a long time. Um, but what I started to see is that um, basically, and it, and it does fit in with uh, our views in terms of quantum physics these days, which is that we're all connected. There's the the boundaries between us are arbitrary. You know, we think our skin is like the edge of our bodies, but now we know that it's not really. It's a, you know, it's actually fuzzy. <laughs> there's there's not such fine delineations. We're all united. We're all connected, and uh, by understanding that that unity or that connection, um, a song with its vibration and with its intent. Um, And and by the way, in shamanism, uh, thoughts are considered things. Thoughts and feelings are are things. They actually have the ability to travel. They they have, um, even though very, very subtle, they have a kind of physicality to them. And so he was able to send a vibration into my body altering the vibration in my body, uh, sending it back into its healthy state via a song, to me today sounds completely viable, completely normal. Of course that's true. Of course. In, In fact, he taught me how to sing songs in a healing fashion to heal other people, which I now do. And I know from the horse's mouth that it works, um, you know, from personal experience. So not only did I have it done to me, but I've seen the results when I do it to somebody else. So um, today it feels like I, I wouldn't, I can't imagine not believing that, that it would work. But back then <laughs> it was jarring. And today, talking about today, that's a perfect point for us to end now, because in our next session, we're going to find out about the work that you do and how it embodies these teachings and practices that you learn from these and many, many other healers and masters. So thank you for part two, Jose. Okay, thank you. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.